Oh, this is, um, you want to sit here? Yeah. Our Lady of Lords Convent, Drahada. So that's in Kshurkana. Sure, and about Mother Mary, and then that's the two of us at the equator on our way up in the desert, in the in the tropics, in the in the, the equator. But that's some of the pictures. I'm meeting Sisters Andrea Kelly and Bernadette Gilsman. They're showing me photos of a place called Turkana. That was our first clinic under a tree with two drums and a door. That's myself. It's in northern Kenya, in Africa a place currently suffering a severe drought. And this is the women, and the, the, they're all skinny. But the very first night we arrived, that was the first night we arrived, and you can see they look kind of healthy. They're young people, but looking closely, you see the skinny ones and this old man. Bernadette is 78. Andrea is 89. And this little fella here, this fella's not really happy. He's just been washed. <laughs> Most of the men wore nothing at all when we were up, went up. The young men, the warriors, had this bit of cloth they called a shuka, and it just tied at the shoulders and flapped in the wind. So he looks kind of fierce, this yeah. guy. Yeah, he's one of the warriors. Yeah. You know, he's probably been initiated. They spend the much of their lives helping the people who live in the desert region of Turkana. There's the three of us. Oh, that's us, yeah. <laughs> we were young there. What yeah. was over 40 years ago. And this another place I was in is halfway between Nairobi and uh, Kitali. I've come to Turkana, where Sister Margaret Toomey has now taken on the missionary life. I always had this romantic view about Turkana. It was the desert. I used to love these stories about the first missionaries who came and how it looked, and I had this longing. I never thought I'd get a chance to do that. So Margaret Toomey now is a Mercy Sister, and she's the medical officer. I'm a Mercy Sister from Cork. I was a registered nurse when I entered, and then I came to Kenya in 78. There was an invitation to come to Turkana. It was like a dream come true for me, this romantic view ahead of Turkana. Do I still have a romantic view? There, there is something about it. There is no doubt about that. But at times, in the day-to-day stuff, it is The climate is harsh. I think the climate is what would uh, drain me down. But overall, Turkana, it is, it's, um, it's special. And I would say the people are they're resilient. Sometimes I can get very frustrated with them, but at the same time, there are people that can teach me a lot about they move on. They're quite, you know, they keep smiling when, when I, I'm wondering, what are they smiling about? What's, what's to be happy about here? So it has taught me an awful lot. I don't think it's what I'm giving. It, in another way, it's what I'm trying to learn about survival, what we can do without, what, we, what do we need and what do we really want. It's, it's a bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Miles and miles of sand and then the, the camels and uh, the people and they they had no they'd never seen white people before they used to feel us to see we were real and um but the 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 sadness of the hunger of the people you know was uh, it was so sad to see children dying of starvation 
50 years after the first nuns went there, there's still human suffering and hungry children in Turkana. I think there'll always be drought up there. This baby is in his mother's arms. His head is big compared to his body. He's listless and his eyes look tired. His mother, Amos, explains how he is. And Ezekiel Dida, who is from Turkana himself and who works for Oxfam, translates what she is saying. Yeah, the, kid, the kid is over two years. Yeah. And, uh, He's very small. Yeah, the kid is two years and it is because of lack of food. That is why the kid, you see, is still small. At one point, she was like, even she could not sleep because the kid was very malnourished. Till when the assistance from Malin came in is now why we are seeing this kid still alive. The kid was really, was almost to die. And if it were not uh, the assistance from Malin, this kid could have died long time ago. For herself, she's not even a beneficiary of relief food. She sleeps even angry, and the kid is there always circling her until even sometimes she feels the breast becoming painful. You know, the kid circling, nothing completely even from the breast. In the early 1960s, a group of priests travelled to northern Kenya to film a Ryark film on the work of the missionaries and to highlight the deprivation of the third world. This is the desert of Turkana, 20,000 square miles of sand and scrub under the blazing African sun. The temperature at the moment is 97 degrees in the shade. But I was telling Sister Andrew, wasn't there the time they made the uh, Turkana film? And... um, these five priests from Dublin arrived up, not having an idea what Turkana was like. Nothing grows here, apart from an occasional scraggly thorn bush shoving its roots deeper and deeper into the soil for the last drop of moisture. But people live here. Somewhere, somehow, among the sand and rocks, the men, women and children of the Turkana tribe keep up a constant struggle against the... And anyway, we had little, very little food. We opened cans of peas and cans of plums and... Uh, fed them as best we could, and uh, they interviewed each of us. You'll have to see that film. The then 29-year-old Sister Bernadette told them about life in Turkana. We have what you'd call a, a minor famine again here at present. Uh, we've had no rain for several months, and the place is all dried up, and uh, they've had to kill off their goats and camels and eat them, and now they've nothing left. Anyway, they, introdu- they stayed about four days. And they were very nice and we had a lot of fun with them, you know, and it was great. But uh, we were scared. We didn't know what making a film was about, you know, and we were kind of nervous and it came across in the film. But anyway, when they were gone, we said, the plane went off one morning at 10 o'clock and we said, oh, thank God they're gone. You know, about four o'clock we heard a plane coming. They were back. The film was overexposed. <laughs> but this this time they brought food. They were wiser, and they stayed another four days. In those days, there were a handful of religious groups allowed into Turkana. 
Now the crisis continues and many NGOs and religious groups are in Turkana trying to help the people there. But they can't control the rain. And for five years now, the rains have failed. Mid-July, the government of Kenya declared a national disaster. And after the government declared a national disaster, Oxfam at the end of July declared Turkana to be catastrophe one. And that is why currently we are implementing an emergency program. It is unusual, like since I joined Oxfam, this is the first time I'm hearing of Turkana being categorized as cut one. I've been in Oxfam for seven years. Dita takes me north, deep into the desert of Turkana, a landscape of rocks and stones that stretches on and on. And uh, we are now departing Lodwa for the field, where we are going to visit uh, a place called uh, Karubang Rock, whereby more pastoral communities who decided to leave their locations because they had lost everything decided to come and settle there. Occasionally we see clusters of little huts made from branches or people walking with goats, dressed traditionally with one cloth wrapped around them. The women's necks swathed with strands of colourful beads. We bump along the tracks and dried up riverbeds. There are no roads and only the hardiest of jeeps can drive on this landscape. Turkana, basically, the whole day from uh, 6am up to 6pm, it is uh, shiny, you can't see clouds most of the time. And then when you come to the landscape, there are a lot of uh, small, small hills and covered. most of the places are covered with stones, uh, but most of the parts are very dry, no pasture. What you can only see is dry shrubs. Yeah, no grass, but dry shrubs. We reach a village called Karabangarok and we meet a woman whose name is Lamagol Ekoma. Lamagol is elderly, but like most Turkana, she doesn't know her age. She sits in the shade of a hut made from shrubs and dried palm leaves. A couple of younger women are sewing goatskins to make some clothing for her. She came to this village because it's a centre where aid agencies distribute relief food. But the food doesn't always arrive. Hmm. She's saying for herself, today I get, the next four days no food, the other day again I get, even counting the days in a month when I get food is hard for her. But there are days where she has no food. Yeah, that is what she's saying. And it is several days is when she go without food, and fewer days is when she gets food from after begging from people. And how does she feel like if she hasn't eaten for a few days? Okay, every time she doesn't get any food, she feels very weak. Yeah, even standing up becomes a problem. She feels the stomach, a lot of pain in the stomach. Yeah, she's too weak. Even sometimes she sleeps without food. And even sometimes when she wants to wake up, she feels like she wants to faint because there is nothing inside the stomach. 
Turkana people are traditionally nomadic. The settled way of life is not how they have historically lived. And villages like this exist only because of food distribution by aid agencies. This village uh, was established in 1992 after a severe drought. And uh, in 1992, Oxfam decided to, to get food aid on a blanket process, whereby everybody was targeted. By that time, everybody was in need in this village. That is why people came here to settle here and started this village, just because of relief food. Did this village exist before 1992? No, it was not existing. Yeah. If they lose their livestock, most Turkana have few other resources to fall back on. For most of them, animals are their only possession of any real value. The traditional food was a cow's milk and camel's blood. That was their traditional food. They'd kill a goat now and again or that, but the, the basics were uh, blood and milk. Well, their wealth is in their animals and in their camels. With the Turkanas, their life is animals. Once you lose these animals, either through cattle rustling, either through severe drought, either through a disease outbreak, there are instances where even the head of those households who are men kill themselves because they don't see themselves going to a sedentary village whereby they will be receiving relief food, something that they are not used to. They have never tested before. They have been used to meat and milk. Now you are taking him to life which is not existing to him. Yeah. So them is like their pride is having the livestock. In in fact even at one point somebody cannot even decide to kill this livestock just because people are hungry at the household level. Just seeing this livestock moving. That is the pride of Atukana. These people are nomadic pastoralists, which means they move from one water hole to another and the animals, sometimes I won't say they're more important than the people, but they will go to any effort to save the animals, medicine-wise, otherwise. So much so that sometimes if you're dealing with eye infections, then you give medicine for the, for the child, but you'll also give some medicine for the animals and the goats because otherwise they might use the one for the other so, because the goats are important so uh, eye infection you give a tetracycline ointment for the child but then give another tube and tell them keep that one for your animals at home because that's how important their animals are when you have a good number of livestock maybe you have five herds of uh, goats and sheep you have a big herd of cattle you have a big herd of camels, you are ranked to be the, 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 the big man in the community. You can even marry as even 20 wives in the Turkana community. You, with the respect that you receive from the community is the respect that even a king is expected to receive. But if you have five, five goats, like, uh, like you don't have camels, you don't have the donkeys, you only have the goats, then you are nobody in the community. Somebody can even stay even up to 50 years without getting married because uh, ladies are given on the basis of how many number of livestock could you, could you give to the parents of the lady. Yeah. 
definitely when you see the camels dying, that is when it's really crisis point because the camels can at least go a longer time than the goats and then the the, the cows and the others. But when you see the camels dying, it's crisis point, and that did happen. Or if they weren't dying, you saw these really emaciated animals going along the road and that's when you knew this was crisis point so when you see the camels dying it's very very serious and that did happen this year and we saw the carcasses and when you see those carcasses then it's serious and we did see that this year yeah. Philip Imun is from Turkana and is the Kenya programme manager for Oxfam he believes this year is among the worst droughts in history this drought is compared to the 1960 to 61 drought that uh, killed camel. And actually, in the local dialect, that year, 1960, is called Namotor. It is the year that the camel were emaciated until their bones were exposed, and most of them died. And in this drought as well, the 2011 drought, uh, we witnessed camel dying, something that has not happened for a very long time. And normally, when the camel dies, the next one to die is the owner of that camel. It's 50 years this year since the first missionaries came in and they were the Kiltegan fathers and they were allowed in because there was a famine. And at that time, Kirkana was a closed-off area of the country of Kenya. So they were given permission to come in to distribute food only. Soon after that, the medical missionaries of Mary came. The first missionaries came to Turkana towards the end of 1961. It was a time of famine, and the Irish Kiltegan fathers were asked to help with the work of famine relief. They eagerly seized the opportunity to enter a country that had been closed to them up to that time, and they settled at a place called Largumu, beside the bed of a dried-up river. Here they built a church from corrugated iron and wire netting, and here they were joined, a few months later, by the first white women ever to live there, two nuns from the medical missionaries of Mary. This here... This, that's the area where we had our first house. We were only there for a couple of months. For, and when we went, the bishop said he had a convent. It was a tin house. <laughs> and we had no water. We had no toilet. We had no nothing. Wire mesh walls. We had to use a bucket and empty it every morning before the priest came over to say mass. So it was a bit of a struggle. And the mobile unit turned out to be a work glory. Our first night... When we arrived, uh, after a journey with our full habit on in the heat, and then four of us in a Volkswagen full of stuff to live on. But we, we arrived there anyway, and I saw this priest on the back of a truck, Father Joe Murray. I can't, oh, Joe Murray, yes. Joe Murray, he's a, a, also a Kiltegan priest. He had shorts on, khaki shorts, nothing on top, and a big sombrero hat, and he's tossing dried fish out to hands that were like this. That was our first yeah, scene yeah. of the camp. And then the crowds, I have pictures here, crowds gathering round, and they were, they were doing like this to take the white off our face. But this seemed to be healthy, but we later discovered that the really sick ones were in the camp and couldn't move. There were 7,000 of them there, Now, children, pay attention. Uh, today, I am going to show you how we 
purify the water from the river before we can drink it. You know that the water is very dirty. And here there is no I have water. Every morning, two or three boys went down with a big drum to the water hole to fill it. Holes in the bottom of it. And what, what do we do next? We put in... We put the wire gauze into the tin. And after the wire gauze, we put in... Are these big stones? No, Are these big stones? Yes, those are big stones. Yes, we put the big stones into the tin next. Uh, to get water, we, we had to dig in the, the in the river and wait for some hours every morning to get enough water to take care of the sick children and to make the yes, food. The and, of course, it was hot and dirty and, <laughs> and uh, had a funny taste. So for ourselves, we had to boil it and filter it. And we spent a lot of time, didn't we, Andrew? Yeah. Now, when we have all that in, what do we do? We take the dirty water and we pour it into the tin. And the water runs through the fine sand, the small stones, the big stones, and it comes out here as clean water. It's water, 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 water. Now in Turkana it has not rained for five years. And uh, what we are also realizing is like uh, the seeds for the for the grass they have started disappearing from the soil because there is no water to make them germinate. Even if it rains, the seeds are no longer there for the grass. But during the the, the dry periods you find there is a lot of conflicts, people fighting over water just because they want their livestock to get enough water. To find water in Turkana, you have to dig deep. But this can be a risky business. That's a kind of water hole. that They dig a hole with their fingers in hand. You know, it starts off with a little scraping and gradually water starts appearing. And they keep going to that. They can be like that, that woman's handing water up. It looks very deep. Yeah, I mean, it can be as wide as six feet and de- as deep for three people. I remember there were three women collecting water, one, two, three in the top of each other, and it collapsed, and the woman at the bottom was never found. Yeah. That's the danger, that's how they get water. Yes. As we drive around Turkana, we see women digging for water, like the nuns described. But many water pumps and boreholes have now been established by NGOs, like this borehole dug by Oxfam in Kachoda village, which provides clean drinking water for the people and the livestock. It's a well 90 metres deep into the ground, and here at the trough, goats and camels are lapping up the fresh water. Now, because there is a rangelands here and the other side there, people are now trying to move closer to Kachoda. They can go graze their livestock, but at the end of the day, bring their livestock here to get water, which is near there. And the source is a permanent one. One local man, Mohamed Izak, who is chairman of the Water Users Association, is experimenting with growing some plants, a rare sight in Turkana. 
But with properly pumped water, Mohammed is showing it is possible. This is a sweet watermelon. Yeah. He has uh, pumpkins, he has the, the peas, he has the kelps, he has maize, he has uh, sorghum, and then he's also planting a farm of tomatoes. But it's unusual to see, like, this is, this is the first time we've seen plants the, like this yes, in Turkana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the first time. Yeah, I think it is because uh, water is available at this site, and uh, people are seeing maybe they can try to diversify what they have. If they can grow and maybe get some supplies and then sell to other people and maybe even consume at the household level. Mm. For him, this is a viable project even during the dry season or the dry periods because it doesn't wait for the rains to be there for you to plant your crops. You just get water from the borehole, then plant your crops, and then you channel water to the crops. No problem. All year, you'll be eating something from your small farm. You know, it was so dry and everything, and uh, we used to be praying for rain and writing home to tell our parents, you know, what it was like. And the next thing was, one day, we were out um, in, the, in a Volkswagen, and uh, the rains come down from the hills and in Uganda and washed down the river and we were carried away in the river the other sister and myself and uh, this uh, Christian brother and uh, we had to climb up on the tree and the car was washed away we were nearly drowned that night so then we were writing home to say to pray for us we were nearly drowned in the desert <laughs> I have a story of a flash flood here you were in Oregon with us Bernadette and we woke up in the middle of the night with a Crowds roaring and stamping and ho oh, yeah 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 and we went got up. It was about three in the morning or something, and along the river bed, the river was about three feet deep, and we're all down with billy cans and all kinds of things to collect water, and the kids were playing in it. But when we woke in the morning, there was a drop of water to be seen. It had gone into the dry sand. Yeah. I always considered Turkana like a baking bowl. You've got the Uganda mountains and the Kenya mountains, and they have the rain, and it comes down into the rivers, you know, then it passes like the night that they had it at three feet, and then it's gone. And then the riverbed, when the water is gone, it curls up, and it, it looks like chocolate. You I want to take, take it up and eat it. <laughs> you can this chocolate flake, that's what it reminded me of. Yeah. logging for a, a nice apple or something, you know. But you never, we never got anything like that up there. Even the wild animals have left Turkana because it's become so dry. What we're getting from our forefathers or our, the people who used to be there, Turkana used to have a lot of wild animals. In Turkana South, we have even the elephants, we have even the lions, all types of wildlife are there in Turkana South. In fact, in Turkana South, they have a game reserve and a national game park. So all these animals from north, all the, the, the wild animals from north and central move to south. Just because Turkana North started getting drier every year, getting drier, drier, drier. It's not only the animals that migrate for water. The nomadic Turkana people have always travelled to find water and pasture. 
And in the dry periods, that means travelling to the border areas where rival tribes live. That brings its own dangers and cattle raids are common. When there is a dry spell, like now in Turkana it has not rained for five years, uh, the elderly women and children are left behind in the village in a settled place. So the young men, young ladies and men go to uh, the grazing fields which is at the border. So what happens is uh, the other people like now the Toposa of Sudan come to where the, the Turkana people are grazing and take away their livestock. They kill people. In fact, uh, the issue about life is not an issue to the pastoral communities. You kill now, tomorrow they're again in the same location just because they want to, to graze their livestock in the same pasture, in the same water which is available. This is Noet. She's in the village of Nakinomet for the last two years. She's describing how her husband was killed by the Taposa tribe from Sudan. After he was killed, there was nobody to take care of the animals, while she was also caring for their five small children. As a result, all the animals died in the drought, and now she's in this village, waiting for relief food from NGOs. Intertribal fighting is nothing new. It's a lot of tribal fighting. Sometimes it's just a skirmish that they, they do for fun. They'll raid each other's cattle and it takes a few women at the same time. It reminds me of one time they were in Katakakuma when the priest had been talking during Mass about love your enemies and all that and they were saying yes, yes, they loved their enemies, loved their enemies. They came out, they picked up their spear and went over to, to the Lorai people to have a fight. But it was kind of a schoolboyish kind of, at least that's how, maybe it wasn't like that, but they, that was their entertainment, you know. And you see they have these tribal fights with the uh, Karamoja people from Uganda and they steal the cattle. Go over the mountains and steal the cattle, and then there's a revenge on that. And very often it's the women that children get caught because they don't move as quickly as the men. And they come in to us with uh, spear wounds in them, and it's very sad, really, you know. And then they'll have a, a kind of reconciliation and a big celebration then, but it's too late, really, sometimes. I see it's part of their life. I meet Limerick man Tony Woods, a lay missionary with VMM, who's also in Turkana, and he tells me about the more modern problem of weapons. Did you see those two with guns there? No. Guns, of course, are very common throughout Turkana. Huge problem, because we also, of course, have all along the borders, there are cattle rustling or goat rustling or whatever, so people are shot and dead. Up in the north, we have Marile from Ethiopia. Also in the north, you have the Toposa from southern Sudan. On the east, you have the Karamojong and the Ji and various others from eastern Uganda. Uh, down south of Lake Turkana, oh, in, in, you have the Pokot from Kenya, causing great problems between the the Turkana, the Pakot, they're traditional enemies. They, of course, think the Turkana are horrible, and the Turkana think they're horrible, and they kill each other with monotonous regularity. So, in the beginning, I thought, you see, that the Turkana were the only ones being attacked. And then someone said, cop yourself on, you know. This is a joke. 
they, you know, the Turkana are as bad as anyone else. Yakaya, you murlo. As an epote, Potrobonaquare. Francis came here after a major raid by the Toposa. The Toposa of Sudan came to their village and raided all the livestock that they had. So they raided them at night while they were asleep. So for them who had no guns, decided to run away. But for them in the same village who had guns, had a big fight with the Toposa and they could manage to get some of their livestock back. But for them who had no guns, just walked empty-handed now to this village. He had never thought one day he could become a beggar like he is now. Esther, how are you? I'm good. Esther, uh, just very quickly, the report for all the children who have been weighed and the children who are on the way. Back in the main town, Ludwar, Sister Margaret Toomey is trying to coordinate all of the health clinics in the district. But not the channels, yeah, not the channels. So anyway, Esther, give me about one hour and I'll ring you back. Would that be okay? Dealing with all sorts of health issues, many of them complicated by malnutrition. It is severe. Now, I hopefully we'll see by the end of this quarter how the returns are showing. But already they're reporting that the numbers attending at the clinics are much, much higher. It means that the staff are overworked because the number of staff we had are still the same ones and now they're overworked and there's a big problem in our units they're ringing in to say. And I feel for them, we want reports and we need them. And then you're asking somebody for a report and she can hardly hear you for the children crying in the background. And there's, uh, there's a lot of pandemonium out there because there's huge workload and not enough people. And unfortunately, right now, there's a malarial outbreak as well. So there's a lot of work. There's a lot of uh, activities going on. And hopefully the returns will show that the malnutrition rate is decreasing. Because if it's already if, if it's already weakened by poor nutrition, well, then all the simple diseases like measles will just kill people. It's as simple as that. Whereas in Ireland, you don't hear of somebody dying of measles anymore. They do here, but that's because the underlying cause is malnutrition. The same with malaria. Many, many will die from chest infections, malaria, gastroenteritis, but the underlying cause the whole time is malnutrition. Mm. Over two kilometres north, in one of the diocese health clinics, we find Alemlim Akiru and her son Atabu. Atabu is almost four, but he's visibly malnourished. He's had too much carbohydrate and not enough protein and vitamins, and his physical and mental development are stunted. He's now in the care of Nurse Fred at the clinic. Mentally also, maybe he'll be, maybe he's affected mentally. The development of the mind uh, might be affected somehow because of that malnutrition. His legs look really, he's trying to walk, his legs look really weak. Mm, his legs are weak. Uh, we, we tell the mother to walk him around, but he, he tires a lot, uh, easily, he tires easily. The sound of the food lorry brings everyone crowding around the school building. 
For weeks past, they'd been drifting into Lorgumo from the furthest parts of the desert, driven by hunger and thirst, drawn on by stories of the place where the white women live and where there's always some food and water to be found. The food came up in a, a big lorry every two weeks and sometimes with the flooding it couldn't get up. One time we had absolutely nothing to eat. Oh yeah, we had to do with nothing a lot of the time. And it can still be difficult for food to reach Turkana. For the last uh, three months, people have not received food. Yeah, just because of uh, poor pipeline from where the food is coming from. All food donations, either from Canada, either from Japan, either from Ireland, all food donations should go through World Food Program. And then World Food Program now to give it to the implementing agency. But even just trying to get information about the World Food Programme can be frustrating for organisations working on the ground. Yesterday I was trying to get World Food Programme to tell me what they had distributed in the last three months, but they didn't tell me. They said, we'll tell you on the 18th of October. We want to know that because we don't want to give out food to the very same people. Uh, people, hungry people in the field, that is the community members in, in the field, who have been expecting this, this food to be getting on monthly basis. They have never received that food since July. Basically because there was a major failure of crops in Kenya. Um, that, is, um, that is in Kitale, Eldoret. Those are the major locations which have been supplying the whole country with cereals, that is maize. So there was a failure last year, and even early this year there was no rain, so that extended the failure. Now what we are getting is like uh, this maize that is at the port of Mombasa uh, that is awaiting clearance. So us getting food to the local community is also becoming a problem. In 84, I think that was my first experience of, of, of what drought could be. But I think one incident that stays with me is at a clinic where we had finished the clinic and there were three children, maybe between 10 and five or six and they were still around when we had finished the clinic and you know from the dust and everything their faces are dusty but you can see the tear stains on their faces and that so when I asked the staff why are they still here it was like the dad had run away the mom had gone to look for food and the children were just at home hungry and you know we all can feel hungry because I missed my dinner or I missed breakfast but we had some food left in the in the vehicle and I just saw them packing this into their faces that's the only description and that's that always stays with me that that's what real hunger is it was as if they couldn't get it in fast enough and to me that's starvation you know and there are people like that around you know yeah yeah and to, to kind of intervene before we reach there I think it's very important for all of us to read the signs of the times because when you will see them eating the berries down the riverbeds, when you will see the, 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 the signs going down, then it's don't wait until they begin to die. You know, get ahead. There is some wild food that can be found in the desert. Edipal is a small green berry that can be found in some parts of Turkana. So this is the Edipal. It looks like green peas, you see? Mm. Looks like a nut. Yeah, almost. yeah. But is it nutritional? It has never been measured anywhere using any parameter. But for them, they always say so long as you feed on this, you can even 
go for the next two days without eating. So better you feed your stomach than sleeping hungry. It can make you sleep at night, yeah, because your stomach is full. This one you need to cook for 12 hours. Ironically, there is actually a huge mass of water to be found in Turkana. Lake Turkana is the biggest desert lake in the world, but it's salty and full of crocodiles. Yeah, we have just moved from Mana Sechabuin village and uh, we are following a river to, to the lake shore of Lake Turkana. And we are approaching now the lake. It does, however, have fish. And although eating fish is foreign to most Turkana, Dida shows me a project that Oxfam have put in place to distribute fish to hungry people. But trying to change the habits of a lifetime can be difficult. The only thing that they always refuse to eat is the fresh fish. Yeah, the fresh fish has got some smell and then it is slippery. So it is like, for them it is like um, they are eating snacks. But people will eat dried fish. Funded through the European Commission, a local trader has been trained in safely producing dried fillets of fish and it's then distributed as food aid. Turkana is vast, so not everyone is near the lake. But for those who are, it means they can receive food aid even when World Food Programme supplies do not arrive. But this one, the fish fillets, the dried ones, they have never refused taking fish fillets. Is there a fish in here? Yes. But this is dried fish, yeah? Yeah. When the fishermen get a fresh fish from the lake, it is uh, processed in such a way that you slice it and then you prepare it nicely and then they bring it. There is a solar dryer here in this village. They put in a solar dryer. It is dried and then it is being sold to him while dry like this. And there's no bones in this? Not even a single bone is inside this meat. This is just pure meat. This is purely a source of protein and minerals because it is a bit salty also. Nakipori, a single mother of four, tries to feed her children by sending them to school because schools provide food. But school also costs money. But even trying doing that, every time they are being chased away because some of them don't have clothes, don't, some of them don't have books and some of them don't have pens. So it is like a struggle between her and the school. That is one way she has been trying as much as possible to make children get food. Education is making slow progress in Turkana. The bishop decided he was going to start a school and so he started the school under a tree teaching the children how to write on the sand and to count with stones. Maybe still education is still something that the people in the interior see as not so important yet, you know. And then we have the informal schools and trying to help the shepherd boys to go to school and that. Do you know the percentage of illiteracy in, in this county? Yesterday we were talking 80.9% illiterate. And for women it would be higher, much higher. There would be many places you would go, you would find nobody literate. 
So this is a big problem, pushing here for children to go to school. We have such a small percentage of children going to school here yet. Only about 34% of primary age children go to school, which is a total disgrace. I uh, abuse people at meetings over it because I said this is ridiculous. In three generations' time, you'll still have a huge number of illiterate people, and they're at the mercy of everyone. You know, every thug in the place sees how he can cheat an illiterate person. When they come into the town, often they're cheated. But, as I'm saying, they're good shepherds. They know every one of their sheep and goats, every one. Maybe they don't count them in a different... I don't know how they count them, but they know when one is missing. Truly, there are many biblical things. You know, when there's one missed, the whole lot go off looking for that one, like, you know. So it is... uh, There are many wonderful things here. Many wonderful. Many irritating things also, of course. (laughs) Uh, Sister Bernadette Gilsonen comes from Rathgar, Dublin. The children attending the mission schools are her special responsibility. And today, like every other day, she'll be at their beck and call, visiting the different classes in the school, watching over them at work and at play, and, her biggest headache, finding enough food from somewhere to satisfy a couple of hundred young appetites for another 24 hours. How long did that first famine last? Oh, it lasted quite a number, quite years, and even a couple of years afterwards, they were still trying to get them back to their own way of life, but they had come so dependent and you didn't really want them to be dependent because they had previously, cattle was their wealth, not money, cattle. But they were trying to get them back and maybe give them a few goats and say, go on. But they kept coming back because they become dependent, which wasn't a good thing. I suppose there is this fear of a dependency on um, aid coming in and of dependency on donors and that. However, as a diocese, we always have this cost-sharing policy, which means no matter what you can give, no matter how small, cash or kind, it can be a mat, it can be a broom, it can be a stool, it can be a fish, it can be charcoal. But there's something about building up the dignity of the people. I've given something and I get something in return. Because the people themselves are very... um, they're very welcoming, they share whatever they have. So build on that extended family, build on that uh, hospitality that's part of their culture. I think the aid agencies are very are very necessary and we need them. I think what can be sometimes a little bit uh, destructive is if an NGO comes in with a policy that's already undermining what's on the ground. Then when you have a village moving like that and they're prepared to help you and to do something and then an NGO comes and everything is for free, that's undermining everything that has been built up. And to me, that's not helpful to the community on the ground. That's using them really or abusing them. This is a community and we must respect the people and their dignity and we must leave them better off than we found them and sometimes I wonder if you take that dignity away what have we done and we're still trying to see what's the best way forward and get away from this handout mentality which is necessary in crisis but it's not okay because it's not helping the people to rise above where they're at you know so it's to work together and just overall we're here to help the people to lift out of it and as much as possible become independent you know and not need us anymore work ourselves out of a job, I think, is what a missionary is supposed to do. <laughs> mm. Food aid is not a solution. Food aid is just saving life, ensuring that they are, they, are, they are alive. They're not dying out of starvation, you know. So we need to go beyond food aid and uh, empower them to um, produce 
their own food. What I would say about the people here are, I wouldn't say religious, but they're spiritual. And no matter how how devastating the situation is, they have this trust in a power greater than themselves, or a kuj, as they call it, like God, a God. So there is a connection between everything that happens to them and the other spirits, you know. And in that sense, like, sometimes you admire them for it because when I'd feel devastated, they are still looking like it's God's will. It mightn't be God as we know God. It mightn't be God in any religion, but it's a spirit that they that they feel is out there. So sometimes when I'd begin to give up, they, they still are, are, are trusting that it all will be well, you know? Yeah, because they're very resilient. <laughs> to sit out at night under the stars and play cards and the priests would come and we'd all play together and we had a great time really, you know, at night. And did you ever miss anything from home though? You, you didn't have much when you were there, like, was it hard? I when I came home, especially the first time I came home, I used to cringe when I'd see a tap running. I couldn't bear to see water being wasted because very often all we had was a little basin with water, it would have to do us for a whole day. And when the light got on it at night, the mosquitoes would get into it. And here you'd be washing your face with it in the morning. You know, it was the only water we had. So even still, I don't like to see people wasting water. So precious. Were you happy there? Oh, very, yes. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of our policy is to um, set up the place and uh, train the local people and then move on. Well, of course, we moved on, but um, we were very sad having to leave there. But um, the writing was on the wall. We were short of sisters, and, uh, you know, there were great needs in other places. And But our hearts are still there. We never left it. I think it, it challenges me because, you know, sometimes I can be impatient when I go home because, like, here, when I'm here, nothing is for waste. You know, even if it is only the skins of the potatoes or the skins of the carrots and I'd say give them to the animals but nothing goes for waste and then you go home and there's so much choosing about the expiry date and the other date and the other date but it certainly it makes me appreciate you know the basic things what do we really need and what do we really want you know I like the comforts of life I'll be the first to say it but I can do with less and sometimes to appreciate that I can survive and I think they have taught me that we can Thank you very much for coming to visit us. As you go home, say also hi to others and tell them people in Nakinomet are greeting them. Tell them thank you. I will, I promise. Are you going to travel, travel safely, we will always be praying for you. Kampala